The interchange is supported by Five Works, a turnkey customer engagement platform. Utilities, if you're looking to go beyond the meter to engage your customers on a deeper level and drive them toward desired outcomes, you're looking for Five Works. Five Works personalizes digital communications and drives customer behavior at scale by using behavioral science, psychographic personas, and machine learning technology to help you market to a customer of one. That's how you deliver the right message to the right person through the right channel at the right time. To see how Five Works can help your program succeed, visit fiveworks.com/theinterchange. That's Five Works with an X. fiveworks.com/theinterchange, or follow the link on the podcast page. Shale, do you know any good blockchain jokes? Ugh, no, I don't. Why do you have one? I I have one. Okay. Hit me with it. So a manager walks up to an engineer and asks, "I think we should build a blockchain." And the engineer asks, "What color?" I don't even get it. Maybe this reflects my ignorance about blockchain. I don't. I don't get the joke. The engineer is telling the manager what they want to hear. The, the manager clearly has no idea what a blockchain Wait, is. Is it? Is that actually a joke? <laughs> it's a. It's a Dilbert cartoon. Oh my god! Dilbert's tapped into something, though. I mean, the corporate world is suddenly enamored with blockchain. And given the crazy price swings in Bitcoin, a lot of people are waking up to the value of cryptocurrency.、Um, so let me ask you this, Shale: How much did blockchain come up over your dinner table conversations during the holidays? A lot. I actually I was at a、uh, sort of a ski weekend with a group of friends last weekend, and it turned out at the end somebody had been tracking the whole time the number of mentions of blockchain or Bitcoin versus the number of mentions of Trump, and blockchain won out. So that. Is reflective of the fact that I've probably used that word more in the past two months than I ever anticipated. How about you? Did you talk about blockchain with the family? Yeah, endlessly. So、uh, for those regular listeners, they know that my wife works in this space. So she often finds herself explaining how blockchain and cryptocurrencies work to family members. And instead of talking about politics and Donald Trump in Washington D.C. during one dinner table conversation, we spent. Over an hour and a half explaining how blockchain works,、um, why Bitcoin was going up so much in value, the potential for cryptocurrencies, and why my wife is an investor in crypto kitties now. So what you're saying is that Sandy is going to come on the podcast at some point. I hope so. She doesn't focus on energy blockchain. She's actually like in the the fintech world, so she's working for a large insurance company that's. Eyeing how things like smart contracts could potentially hurt them, and they want to get out in front of this so that they can harness a network like blockchain, so that、um, you know competitors don't come in and undercut them. Basically, so most people don't know much about this space, and that means like I can fake it with them and sound semi-smart around the dinner table, but there are a lot of concepts I struggle with, and. Every time I feel like I've wrapped my head around something like a concept or business model, something else emerges that makes me feel like I have a lot more to learn. This is the interchange conversations on the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacy with Shale Khan, and in today's episode, we've got a new segment that will hopefully make us a little bit smarter about blockchain and how it will impact the energy industry. We're calling it consensus. Okay, Shale. We've done a couple episodes on energy blockchain applications. Why are we picking this back up? Well, because first of all, there are a lot of 
blockchain applications in the energy sector that are emerging and evolving. And every time that we talk about one of them on this podcast, another one springs up and it's different and it's worth a conversation because we need to understand it. We need to figure out whether we believe that it's a useful application or just kind of vaporware. Uh, and also because just the, the blockchain universe is changing so fast right now and with all the hype and all the new companies springing up in it. So I think, you know, every time something new comes up, as you said, we find ourselves just as confused as we had been about the previous application before we learned about it. So there are just going to be a bunch of opportunities over the next few years to take a step back and try to understand the new thing in blockchain and energy. We are going to bring a blockchain-related topic that we don't understand, a term, a business model, an application, and present it to GTM's resident blockchain enthusiast, Scott Clavenna, to see if he can help us out. Scott is the chairman of the Power and Renewables business at GTM and Wood McKenzie, and as regular listeners know, he's studying this space closely. In fact, Scott is also putting together a blockchain and energy forum in New York City on March 8th. Scott, how's it going? Good, good. Thanks for having me on. Hey, this sounds like fun. Are you ready to see if you can help us newbies out? Yes, I guess. I, t- I feel very sympathetic to the notion that blockchain, studying blockchain is literally like you open one door that you think, you know, will solve or will answer one of your, uh, you know, the last key question you have about it. And you realize there's a thousand other doors behind it with, uh, that exposes the depth of your ignorance. So I'm, I'm getting there. I'm walking through the doors, but every time I, I figure something out, I realize I need to figure, you know, 50 other things out. Can I ask you a question about that? You've, when we've talked about blockchain before, once in a while, you've made an analogy to the internet in the early days of the internet, which you also were involved in at the time as like a telecommunications expert. Did you feel similarly about the internet in its early days in terms of like how hard it was to understand? Yeah, I had a I had a conversation about this last week, and I think I did not. I did to some extent. There were times where looking at optical networks, I realized um, I had to understand like how telecommunications transmission networks worked to understand the value of one particular component or some breakthrough. So I had to do some more reading. And oftentimes I get asked just about photonics, like the underlying technology or, you know, the physics of how optical networks work. So I'd have to do a little reading, but I never got, I never found just one answer led to so many other questions. I mean, here, I think because blockchain, it applies to so many different industries and so many different applications, you're not solving just one thing with it, that even as we're as we talk about blockchain, you're talking about cryptocurrency. So you have to suddenly, you realize you have to step back and say, answer some really simple questions that are not easy to answer. Like, what is money? You know, what is a store of value versus a currency? Like, what's the difference between gold and cash? You know, and these are things you all take for granted. But if you really want to answer questions about blockchain and, and you know, cryptocurrencies, you have to feel like you understand all of that. What's an international trade? How do you settle um, transactions across borders? Like, I don't know. You know, do you realize like blockchain has a great application for that? But then the only way to talk about it is to back up and say, okay, I need to figure out like cross-border settlements and counterparty risk. And, you know, it's just, uh, it, it, it's endless. Totally. And it's also 
like a very multidisciplinary problem in that you just described a bunch of questions that are sort of answered by like macroeconomics and international trade as disciplines. But then, you know, there's another set of questions in order to understand blockchain that requires an understanding of like how computers work and, you know, how trades are settled in financial markets. And so you, you know, you simultaneously, and, and, you know, trust and security, cybersecurity, like, all of those things, if you want a full understanding of blockchain, you you have to like get all of those disciplines, which I feel like very few people do. Okay, so we do have a couple concepts that we want to explore today, and we'll see um, where that takes us. And if we start unpacking some of those much simpler concepts that I feel like maybe some of us should know, but it's laying bare the uh, limits of our expertise, or at least mine. <laughs> the first is this emerging energy trading firm, WePower. And I want to understand how tokenized energy trading will work and how WePower differs from other companies out there. And Shale, you've got big questions about the energy use of Bitcoin. Yeah, my set of questions isn't about a specific application of blockchain in the energy sector, but rather the energy use of cryptocurrency mining, which has gained a lot of attention and for which there are a whole bunch of questions within that. Let's start with WePower and this concept of using uh, the blockchain to verify uh, energy trading. This is probably the first mover application for a lot of firms in this space. And it's going to be important for you know retail electricity sales and wholesale market trading. And it seems like a lot of companies are pursuing the wholesale side. So that's where WePower is at. Um, again, it's this blockchain based platform for renewables specific trading. In a sense, as I understand it, it's a way to raise capital for a project. So if developers want to raise money for a solar project, they issue tokens on the platform for future electricity delivery. And buyers of those tokens are basically investing in a project with the promise that electricity will get delivered at a later date, a forward contract of sorts. And I want to understand whether this mirrors existing forward contracts. This is an example where I sort of understand each element of the company's business model, you know, and some of the corollaries out there in the market, but I'm having trouble with aggregating them all together. So um, maybe to the best of your ability, Scott, you can quickly summarize what WePower does. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's new. I think it actually is fairly unique. I think WePower, by focusing right now exclusively on the project development side of renewable energy is actually kind of unique. It's not one of these peer-to-peer, more retail-focused energy trading mechanisms. Um, It does tokenize generated electricity from uh, renewable energy assets, or or it could be a a battery, just um, anything where electricity is delivered from an asset. It tokenizes that and allows people... um, in a market then it creates a market for those tokens that can be traded in various ways um, among market participants or to actually trade for use of that energy. But it is fairly unique in that its focus is to use blockchain as a platform to create a market that then creates a financing platform for renewable energy projects. I got to stop you right here. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we already hit a concept that probably needs some explaining, and that is tokenizing. (laughs) So like, I I think that we're just automatically assuming that people understand what that term means. And before we get into the transaction itself, like, you know, tokenization, as I understand it is like the assignment of 
random values to a packet of information, which is like basically no, no, no. not exactly. Okay, no. so here we go. A, <laughs> Let's embark there on this journey together. In the IT world, that's somewhere around there. But tokenization in this world of blockchain and crypto is it's the it's converting rights to an asset into a digital token on a blockchain. So it's a it's an assignment of rights to anything that can be a physical asset or um, any kind of virtual asset. It could be copyright. It could be it's just literally an asset then gets a, a broad definition here. It can be fungible. It can be physical, all this. But it's it's the assignment of rights to that. And so the value of it is set by a market or by the issuer. But the, the key thing is um, the tokenization is assigning rights. So as an example, then when I say buy stock right now, like if I go you know, onto a, my Fidelity account and I buy one share of a company, um, that is not currently tokenized because there is no sort of digital, unassailable, unique asset assigned to it. But if there were, this is what cryptocurrency allows, right? Is that in theory, I could buy stock that was tokenized. And if I did, the difference would be my, you know, my Fidelity account might look, might look the same either way. But what would actually happen in that case is that like a unique code would get assigned to me that everybody within a blockchain recognizes as mine. And then I would be trading that token. Yes. Right. So it's, it's that the distinction is we still, we buy and sell stuff online, right. But the stuff that we buy and sell online, if it's not using blockchain, just does not have this kind of unique verified uh, identifier attached to it. Yep. No, that's, that's, I think the promise, the beauty of all the tokenization is that once you have tokenized something and it is in this digital format, not only um, have you now digitized, you know, sort of ownership of everything in, in an atomized kind of fashion, you could sell, you know, fractional sort of shares, as it were, fractional ownership of literally anything, of an activity, of a copyright, of a physical asset, literally anything. Um, but you also have done it on a, on a blockchain that's global and standardized. Like you have a platform that crosses borders, that crosses, you know, any kind of regulatory regime, different currency regimes, anything you have just like a a digital token that can be traded more or less instantaneously anywhere that, that the blockchain touches or that, that market has been created. Right. Okay, so let's now apply this to a a renewable energy project. So I build or plan to build a solar project in wherever, in Latvia. And that project uh, is physical, but I've decided to tokenize the generation from it. Now, I guess my first question in terms of what WePower is doing is are they assigning rights to like equity shares of the project or are they assigning is like, is one token equivalent to X percent? Cause that's the, you know, there was a wave of sort of solar crowdfunding um, a while back. And, and I think that's what it wasn't using cryptocurrency at that point, but, but what we power is doing sounds roughly similar to that and like assigning rights to a diverse group of individuals, but they were largely assigning like rights to a share of the ownership of the project. And this is different, right? This is different. Yeah. As far as I understand, and I guess I should say, I haven't spent any time talking to the founders of WePower. I've read a bunch about it, spent some time at the white paper, talked to some other experts about solar project finance and you know how this compares. So 
with my understanding, that's not what you're doing when you're buying, um, when you're taking part in the financing of one of their renewable energy projects. So they would still raise capital in the traditional means. There would be equity investors and lenders that would provide, say, 90% of the capital for a project. Then what they would do is that remaining 10% or 20%. So it's only a a minority share of the financing required. They sell through tokenized energy to be produced on from that platform in the future. So that's what you're buying. You're not really an equity stakeholder. You're more or less being, you're, you're buying a fairly liquid short-term PPA. Right. Except that you, except so the, so then the tokens are measured in kilowatt hours or megawatt hours. Yes, They're one, measures of token equals one. Right. And one to one. So then what happens with the actual project is the project gets built and starts operating and sells power into whatever market it's in. Now I, the token holder don't actually have to be a consumer in that market. So I can't utilize those kilowatt hours or megawatt hours myself. So what I actually get from that is what my, you know, for every kilowatt hour generated, the project generates revenue and I get assigned some portion of that revenue? Or how does it actually, like, what do I get? The way they describe it in the white paper and the way they're out talking about it, and they are, I guess I should preface this with a bit of a disclosure. So WePower is in the midst of a, a initial coin offering. They're going to sell a ton of these tokens, um, not these kilowatt hour tokens, but they're going to sell WPR tokens, which just give you priority access um, to the WePower network. And with that priority access, then you get to participate in these auctions of the, the tokens that we're talking about here associated with individual product projects. So the key thing being, there is an ICO coming up. Uh, just one disclosure, I'm not involved in WePower, I'm not involved in that ICO, and nothing we're talking about here today is meant to be an ICO preview or assigning any value um, or our opinion on it. We're just going to try and describe this as best we can so you have an understanding of it. Okay, so when these projects then generate power and those and thereby tokenizing that electricity, um, you have these tokens. And so WePower has given you three options of what to do with those tokens. If you are in that market, you actually can use those tokens to literally consume the energy that is produced. So you can be a um, buyer of that energy with your, you trade your tokens for that energy. And a key point that I overlooked is that the whole value of buying these uh, tokens in these auctions uh, to, you know, this fractional share of the energy is that it's already been negotiated at a discount from the prevailing market rate for power in whatever market that's in. So it's 10, 20% below market rate. So you, you are basically through providing funding up front, you're entering into a kind of a, a liquid PPA that is already set at below market rates. <laughs> okay, so I'm now let's just take this, this example for a minute before we move on to the other ways you can use the tokens. I'm, so I know that um, WePower has a partnership in Estonia with a big utility there. That's a test bed. The key thing is okay. Spain, where they're actually going to do the first okay, so project. Spain. So say I'm a Spanish. This is a Gibraltar-based company. Okay. So say I'm a, a Gibraltar-based consumer of electricity, 
um, and I buy some of these tokens. So I buy into the ICO, which then allows me to participate early in a token auction because they have a project in my region that is uh, coming up or getting developed. So I do that. I buy a bunch of tokens. I now hold tokens that represent kilowatt hours in my market, generation in my market. And the, the price of those is somehow is less 10, 20% less than my retail price of electricity otherwise would be. Um, can I actually assign those tokens directly onto my bill? Meaning have they negotiated a deal with the, the utility such that I, it actually is incorporated into my bill as savings as if I had solar on my roof, or is this sort of a separate out of network transaction that just like settles to 10 or 20% less? That is a good question that I'm not 100% sure if it goes all the way down to you. If you, the market participant, are in a home, um, I think that's what they're going to test out in Estonia, where there's 100% smart meter coverage, then they could extend that all the way to the home because the smart meter would be that digital meter of record of consumption. It may not be the case in Spain. It may be more wholesale to retail transactions, you know, so it's not necessarily to an individual homeowner, but someone operating in a retail space could buy um, lower price wholesale power. Okay. All right. So one way or another, that use case seems pretty straightforward to me. I use it to offset my bill and I save some money on it as if I had installed my own generator. If you're a retail provider, you can be buying energy from the wholesale market with these tokens. Say the wholesale market's at four cents, you can be buying it at three cents, right? You can you can exchange your tokens for the equivalent of it as though they were three cent kilowatt hours. Yeah, that that version looks a little bit more like a like an offsite corporate renewable PPA. Yes, it's exactly in the like US. That. Yeah, like right. whether or not it's on your bill. Okay, all right. That's that's use number one. What's use number two? Two, you could actually sell that even before it's produced. You could just find another buyer in the market. So if if you're sitting here in the U.S. and you're sitting on a million tokens, you could find a retailer in Spain and say, hey, I'll sell you these tokens at a little bit of a, I'll sell them to you for three and a half cents. So you take half of the profits, they, they, they still want it at a discount. Or maybe even at the, at the current market rate, and they're going to hold them long because they think power is going to continue to go up. You, know, you just have a, you become a market trader. Wait, that actually raises, you said that the prices are going to go up. That raises a question for me. If I own a token, um, that is equivalent to, say, one kilowatt hour of generation at any point in time. Can I call that from any kilowatt hour produced when, you know, over the next 25 years of the project's operation? Or is it like assigned a time? Apparently, it's assigned a time. And it's a little, I will say, that's a little thin in here. It says typically four to six months from when the project comes online. But that doesn't make any, I mean, so the project is generating kilowatt hours for the next 25 years. Right. Uh, they, so I guess then they're assuming they're going to sell enough tokens to max out the number of kilowatt hours that they're willing to sell for the next four to six months. And then they'll have another token sale six months later when the project generates a bunch more power. No, no, see, you've reached one of those doors that when you get to it, it doesn't open. Um, so <laughs> it's possible that, yeah, these are just rights to that much generation and you could hold it and, you know, sell it whenever you see the, the greatest spread between um, what your price and what the market price is, or you are assigned a particular time. It's, that's not super clear in the uh, white paper. 
Yeah. And the other thing that scares me about this use case, the, the idea that you buy it for resale, I mean, selling it to a retailer, sure, that part makes sense. But this also seems like the use case that is like prone to speculation, which which I think has been the case in a lot of these initial coin offerings is just like, I buy it because I think somebody else is willing to pay more. And I'm not sure why or who, but but there's going to be somebody out there. And like, that's the that's the worst case scenario for all these auctions because it's not like reflective of the intrinsic value of the asset. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So their third one is just a variation on that. The, the third option is you automatically sell the energy to the wholesale energy market once the energy is produced and you immediately settle. So that's just saying that's sort of you, you're giving the developer the benefit of the, the financing upfront in exchange for the moment um, that power is generated, you're just going to take your profit. So it's just, you set it and forget it. And you're just an investor um, with a, hopefully a, you know, a relatively well-known spread between what you paid and what the market will be. Except wholesale prices are pretty volatile, Generally, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know about Gibraltar specifically, but I'm thinking about the U.S. and like wholesale market. Wholesale prices are go all over the place, and so if I don't control the time of of the timestamp of when, even within a, a given day, of when my kilowatt hour is generated, that can have a huge impact on its value in the market. Yes. There's some there's an interesting there's an interesting sentence in the white paper that goes this leaves an ambiguity of the final settlement price as it does at the market price in that specific moment. Right. So like what Mike is my token. I mean, I, I'd love to be able to say like the clever version of that would be uh, I want to buy the token that reflects, you know, January 22nd, 2019 at 6 p.m. You know, and then there's going to be like, like I can calculate, I can forecast wholesale prices and figure out when I think it's going to have the biggest spread. But if I don't know, that just seems like a huge element of risk. Okay. So what, what is the application here? Is this a way to facilitate cross border energy transactions? I mean, it sounds like a, a more distributed way to execute wholesale electricity trades, but, uh, they're, you know, if in theory, someone from a completely different country can, an American investor can purchase the electrons from a Gibraltar based solar project. Um, is, is this a way to facilitate those kinds of cross border energy transactions? Well, it's, I think it's more about, um, the availability of capital for renewable energy projects, like increasing the availability. And what, what I find interesting is that if you build most of these projects, in places where the IRRs are pretty high, pretty reliably high in, you know, the Mediterranean, Middle East, Africa, and, but you're allowing investment from all over the world through this token platform. It does seem like in an ideal world, it does seem like a very efficient way to get a lot of capital to these projects, um, from a lot of sources in areas where the likelihood that the projects are in a good environment for high returns, um, that feels like a positive thing in, in general, you know, good terms for the investors because they're in higher IRR regimes and good terms for the uh, developers because they have access to not all the capital, but, you know, 10, 20% of the capital um, is coming from this outside source through a fairly well standardized smart contract based blockchain based 
you know, market system. Do you know when in the stage of a project's development cycle, they plan to issue these auctions of the individual tokens? Is it like when the project is about to begin operation? Is it in the early development, you know, stage as they're raising capital for construction finance? Do, do they say even? They put it back to when a plant is first planned, we will estimate its energy production pattern. Then the green energy developer will be able to bundle up the desired amount of future generated power and set a price for it. So it seems fairly early on in the project development. Right. So, so you know, just stepping back, like as it stands today, when you develop a, a renewable energy project, um, there's sort of decreasing risk as time goes on and the project gets further developed that, you know, and and the way that it works out today is you get like very risky capital early on that is for origination, which doesn't cost as much money, but, you know, you, so you get riskier capital with lower dollars and then you get to, you know, a further stage, you have to sign a PPA, you have to get an interconnection agreement, you have to, you know, secure your, um, your equipment and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, you need, uh, to finance the construction, which is the big expensive thing and is less risky than origination, but more risky than what ends up being the long-term owner who owns the asset once it's begun operation. At that point, a lot of the risk is gone, except for the the sort of market risk and the the risk that the project fails or degrades faster. And this feels to me like you're getting you're bought, you're selling electrons before the project has been developed, which puts you in the early very risky category. So what happens if you buy the tokens for a project that fails, which happens, you know, tons of projects fail. So then it comes down to, well, that's a really good question because the way it's described, it describes how they come about um, assigning the value to these tokens and actually creating the, you know, the, the predicted share of the total investment that will be tokenized, but it doesn't say actually when they hold the auction. So the key moment in time is when you log into WePower, you see there's a project in Spain that they're holding an auction for next week. That's when you would want to know where, that's when you need to do some diligence. You should hopefully do a lot of diligence, but it, it does feel like that moment is the auction held once they have all the, the rest of the debt and equity lined up and um, off takers, everything, or are they holding that auction very early on saying, this is a speculative project we're looking for, inv- you know, investors early and then we're going to add all the rest of the pieces that's not clear from here either we have another major rabbit hole to jump down here before we climb up this one and jump down that other one i want to ask a even more basic question why why should a platform like this exist um what do you think the benefits are scott um if there are a lot of individual investors a lot of people that might want to you know put five, 10, 15, you know, however much, however many thousands into renewable energy projects, because they see it's um, a good return for them. And then they feel good about supporting renewable energy around the world. It does feel like in the grand scheme of things, if that's what happens is it unlocks a vast global appetite for investing in uh, renewable energy, then that answers the why. If there's hundreds of millions of dollars kind of out there in aggregate, of people willing uh, to to invest in renewable energy, then this is a great way to get it to those projects, in theory. The Interchange is brought to you by FiveWorks. Times, they are a changing for utilities. 
In this digital age, the world expects more. And in the utility space, that means beyond meter data. Not only are you being asked to better engage and service your customers, but to anticipate their changing expectations and preferences. So what does it mean to truly know your customers? And can you leverage your data and the rising standards for customer engagement to benefit your business? With FiveWorks, absolutely you can. FiveWorks personalizes communication and drives customer action at scale through behavioral science, psychographic personas, and machine learning, enabling you to deliver the right message to the right person through the right channel at the right time. Go to fiveworks.com slash the interchange for more. That's fiveworks with an X, fiveworks.com slash the interchange, or follow the link on the podcast page to begin engaging the customer of one. Okay, so on to our second complicated, confusing issue of the day. And so, as I mentioned at the beginning, this one is not about an application of blockchain in the energy sector. It is about blockchain's impact on energy. So there's been a lot of press about this recently because the energy consumption of cryptocurrency mining and in particular Bitcoin mining has been growing basically exponentially for the past year as the price of Bitcoin has been growing exponentially. And it's gotten to the point where Currently, by most estimates, Bitcoin mining in aggregate represents about as much energy consumption as a small country. Um, it's about as much as Bulgaria, that, as far as I've seen recently. And with their predictions, Morgan Stanley predicted that it's going to be as much as Argentina by the end of this year. And then there have been a bunch of really alarming forecasts that look forward and suggest that Bitcoin mining is going to become, you know, in, in some scenarios could like dwarf electricity consumption from everything else in the world by a decade from now. But even the, the less alarming ones than that suggest that it's going to create more new load than electric vehicles. It's going to represent a medium size, even a large size country. And then, you know, that creates a bunch of additional questions about where that electricity consumption would come from. Um, is it going to be clean? Is it going to be new? Is it going to be dirty? And so on. But, and so I've been diving into this some. Um, and I want to talk about a few bits of it. The first one, just starting at the most basic level, is um, why does Bitcoin mining use so much energy? And what is the relationship between mining and energy consumption? So, Scott, do you want to kind of kick us off there and then I'll jump in? Sure, sure. That is not a simple question to answer, but I, I think fundamentally it requires a lot of energy because it requires a lot of computing power because there is no trusted third party. There's no trusted intermediary in this very critical financial system that is uh, cryptocurrency. And so if you've eliminated your trust in banks and brokers and any anyone in charge of managing your balances and ledgers, then you fundamentally, the way they came up with Bitcoin was to say, you're going to put your trust in math. It's distributed. Everyone agrees that math is math. Everyone trusts math. <laughs> and so the idea is the, the way in which every transaction is validated is to run very computationally uh, intensive hashing mechanisms on um, that transaction that then uh, is validated by everyone else on that 
um, network as well. So everyone's participating in running this, uh, you know, the cryptographic algorithms that have to run to make sure if I send you one Bitcoin, my balance goes down by one, yours goes up by one, and I can't, you know, mimic that onto anyone else's account. And, you know, it's a, it's a perfect um, sort of balance sheet of Bitcoin. And to do that, it does, you know, there's no authority other than this, the, the, the cryptographic math that's going on. And that math is hard. And it also, because as the value of Bitcoin goes up, more and more, not the number of transactions, it's not, energy use isn't really tied to transaction volume. It's more tied to the value of Bitcoin itself. So as the value goes up, it incentivizes, uh, it creates an economic incentive for more miners. And these are people that would um, own, you know, computing processing uh, resources to participate in, in Bitcoin. It incentivizes them to devote those resources to mining because they're rewarded with Bitcoins for, um, for doing that mining. And as the value of Bitcoin goes up, it allows them to invest in more computers and it kind of builds on itself. So whatever the market cap of Bitcoin is, there's a associated value of compute resources that miners invest in. So it has gone up quite a lot. Can I attempt another version of that explanation? That is, I'm going to try to make it as simple as possible. I was just trying to do this because I wanted to write up an explanation of it for my newsletter. And this is the simplest thing I've been able to come up with and tell me if and where I'm wrong. Um, Okay. So the way that new Bitcoins come into existence is through mining. The way that mining works is that a bunch of miners, which are computers, solve difficult math problems. Difficult math problems require a lot of computation. A lot of computation requires a lot of energy. The, The harder the math problem, the more energy you end up using to solve it. If you're a miner, your goal is to be awarded the next block in the blockchain. And the way that Bitcoin works is that there is one block awarded every 10 minutes. And so if you're the lucky miner who gets awarded a block, you get a fixed number of Bitcoin in exchange. That currently sits at 12 and a half Bitcoin per block. So if I'm a miner and I happen to get awarded a block, I get 12 and a half Bitcoin in exchange. That currently, you know, Bitcoin is currently sitting over $10,000 per, so it's pretty lucrative. But the Bitcoin algorithm, or I guess the, the Bitcoin system, is designed to ensure that a new block is created exactly every 10 minutes. So if a bunch of new miners pop up onto the network and start solving math problems, uh, it doesn't mean that you get a bunch more blocks in the same amount of time. It means that the math problems basically get harder. So they adjust such that they end up awarding one every 10 minutes. So what ended up happening recently is that the price of Bitcoin went way up. So the revenue you could generate from getting one block was increasing. And as a result, we got a bunch of new miners, which meant then that the math problems adjusted to become more difficult, which meant that they had to use more computational resources to mine a block, which meant that they needed more energy. And so this is the sort of scary spiral that people have talked about, which is if the value of Bitcoin keeps going up, uh, there is sort of nothing to stop this from continuing to infinity, which means that the energy consumption could grow by orders of magnitude. 
Did I get anything wrong there? No, 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 that's pretty much, that's right. Yep. It works in reverse too. So if Bitcoin price goes down, then there's less of incentive and um, people would, there would be less energy consumed. But yeah, it's tied to that 10 minute figure and it's um, uh, tied to the sort of the market cap or the value of Bitcoin. Those are the two key figures. Okay. So then two, two quick additional threads there. The first one is a, you mentioned this, and this is a really key point, which is that I presume then that all these projections about Bitcoin energy consumption going through the roof rely upon the assumption that Bitcoin prices will continue to increase. Is that right? Yes, that is the key, key thing. People, there's, there's often in articles a confusion around tying it to the number of transactions, but it's really not. It's, it's tied very tightly to the value of Bitcoin. Right. Okay, so if you believe that Bitcoin is currently in a bubble and the price is going to crash, then probably you shouldn't be that worried about energy consumption. The other thing that I guess makes make, should make you maybe slightly less concerned, as I understand it, um, is that the other sort of bit of how the Bitcoin system works is that the, the number of Bitcoin you get for mining a block falls um, over time. So it falls, it basically gets cut in half every four years. So initially in the early days of Bitcoin, when you mined a block, you would get 50 Bitcoin. Already we're down to 12 and a half Bitcoin per block. And that's going to get cut in half again every four years to infinity, which is how the system is designed to ensure that at the end of the day, only a certain number of Bitcoin will be generated. And so that means that even if prices increase a little bit every year, um, as time goes on, you're going to get less Bitcoin for every block that you mine, which again is going to create a disincentive for you to add new miners and new resources to mining and thus less energy consumption. Right. And the, I guess the one thing in addition to that is that we've seen in computing um, for decades is that computers themselves get more energy efficient and faster every year. So there's not a one-to-one relationship between the algorithm and the energy. Right. Okay. So like I can get, so here's, here's where I, this is as far as I can extend. So I can get to the point where I now understand why Bitcoin uses a lot of energy and I can, and I can understand the dynamics that would cause it to keep using more and more energy, which is in short, Bitcoin prices keep increasing, computing efficiency doesn't increase by a ton. Um, and those two things alone probably do the trick. Um, and the things that would cause Bitcoin energy consumption not to be a big deal, which is prices stabilizing or falling and or computing resources uh, or computing efficiency increasing. Now, there's this kind of separate conversation going on about changing the way that Bitcoin mining works in order to reduce its energy consumption impacts. And this has to do with the current mechanism for mining, which is called proof of work versus this new idea, which is called proof of stake. And as hard as I try, I have a really hard time grasping those two notions and how they are different from each other. Can you do it? (laughs) I was in the car the other day and I tried to, my, my wife, Sandy asked me to repeat back to her what I thought both meant. And she just like shook her head. She was like, no, you don't really get it, do you? <laughs> oh, that's the worst thing about <laughs> cryptocurrency people. I'll just say every time we do a crypt- like a blockchain episode on this show, I like somebody runs into me on the street and s- explains to me something that I got wrong on the episode. But they're usually like 
crypto nerds and and they always have this very disdainful attitude toward <laughs> like my ignorance about the minutia of how crypto yeah. mining works or <laughs> indeed trading. i mean i've seen twitter wars over whether you call it a blockchain or the blockchain there are lots of semantic uh, battles over how you talk about this stuff but anyway this is this is really i mean it's complicated stuff um, Scott, what, what is your ability to describe both of these concepts? Uh, well, okay. So proof of stake is is much less well defined. I mean, I, one thing I think that's probably important is that people think that uh, you could get the impression, at least from articles, that there's this proof of stake um, concept and it's very energy efficient. Um, and if only Bitcoin would just adopt it, they would solve it. The problem with proof of stake is that it's not even well-defined yet. It's not proven yet to be as um, secure as proof of work is, you know, running that th- those very computationally intensive um, validations on, uh, you know, the, the Bitcoin currency transactions. So the issue is it's, it's still not well-defined. Even people within the Ethereum community, anyone who's looking at moving to proof of stake, that's probably where it would happen first is the Ethereum um, blockchain, which currently uses a, a kind of proof of work as it's uh, valid there, they could move to proof of stake. But even there, there's lots of debate about whether it's mature enough, whether it actually is secure or what have you. But proof of stake basically said, you know, adds another, it removes the computationally intensive part of um, Bitcoin mining and um, it still has a lot of cryptography around it, but the stake, the proof of stake is that it basically makes anyone who's a validator on the network more or less put a very large deposit of currency down. So they, they, they put a stake down. And so the idea is built into the, um, built into that proof of stake process then is mechanisms that, you can validate transactions because you have a um, a sizable stake of currency at stake as a validator. And if you do anything wrong or if you do anything that looks suspicious, you forfeit your stake. So there's a, there's a penalty associated with it, a personal penalty associated with it, which is not the case in proof of work. Proof of work, you don't even have to own any Bitcoin. You just have to devote computational power to it so you're you're just sort of risking your own um, investment in that where proof of stake you're actually part of the um the the sort of currency holders and a, a fairly large part and so you stake it on that and then there are some other layers around that so that you can't just be a big whale and then just corrupt the whole thing because there's validation that is there is consensus still it's not that you are a single validator but you sort of drive it um and then I start to run out of the, the clarity because there is a lot of different proposals around it. And, and Ethereum can't even um, agree on that yet. The reason that proof of, so the, the current world is proof of work uh, in Bitcoin and the people who want to move it to proof of stake because of the energy consumption benefits of that um, want to do so because proof of stake does not create an incentive for new mines to just pop up and use really high powered computers to get Bitcoin. You could no longer do that in this, in the, in the proof of stake world. Instead, 
if you are already a holder of Bitcoin, you could put up your Bitcoin, like almost like put it up in escrow um, in exchange for mining. Is that right? Yep. Okay. So is this not just a way for the rich to get richer, which seems like totally anathema to the whole notion of, of Bitcoin? In other words, is it not like saying, you know, in order for you to mine for gold, you have to already have a lot of gold and put a bunch of that gold in a vault that you will lose if you, you know, create fake gold or something like that. The, the key distinction is the word mine. I think in, a th- in, in where you would use proof of stake is that all the currency's already been minted. So you're just getting transaction fees um, and you're sort of, a, you're, you're granted the rights of a validator because you have a big stake at risk, but that doesn't actually earn you any reward of, you're not mining, you're not minting any, you're not getting a reward of actual um, cryptocurrency by doing it. You're getting some transaction fees, but any, you know, others can do that as well. You're just a key validator on the network. Ah, so it, it basically eliminates mining. In other words, it's just a different way. I mean, the, the point of mining as it stands right now is to be able to devote computational resources to validating transactions. Like that's the whole point of having computers yeah. doing all of this work in the first place. It's not just to mint Bitcoin. That's like the way that they incentivize you to mine. But with the actual hard math that you're doing, like the point of that is to, to validate transactions, which is the whole thing with Bitcoin. Well, let's get back to the very premise of this conversation. That is that Bitcoin mining is going to be a global catastrophe because of exponential energy use, if you believe that the price will continue to go up. Scott, I I don't think that you're quite sold on that, are you? Not really. I mean, I think this has happened before, Um, even in the internet. There was a lot of talk of, with Facebook and uh, Google, anyone who who ran large data centers that were going to be... um, very computationally intensive data centers that housed all the information on the internet, like Facebook and Google and anyone else that they were having to move their data centers to Iceland or, you know, low cost electricity areas. And that, that is true, but technology tends to always get one step ahead of these issues because there's such an economic incentive that, um, Personally, I just think it's not it's not going to be that hard to solve. In fact, almost anything in cryptocurrency or blockchain, when there's a, for me, I have a bias toward reacting to any of these issues around scalability, around energy use, um, security to some extent, that if the problems are digital, I have a tendency to believe they are eminently solvable. I guess I'm a little bit more concerned about it than it sounds like you are. I don't know that I'm necessarily on the fully alarmist, like this is going to, you know, double the pace of global warming side, but, uh, but, you know, you used a good example of the data centers, which is, which is real, you know, data centers do use a ton of electricity. It happens to be that, um, a lot of the, the, the big companies that require a lot of data centers, they have commitments to renewable energy. And so that I think has alleviated some people's concerns about the climate impact of data center energy usage. But, you know, were that not the case, you know, it would be an issue. And you can already see this uh, with Bitcoin mining, which is like these miners are, many of them were in China, you know, now China has sort of clamped down um, 
on them. And so they're moving to other places and that's displacing generation that otherwise would have been produced for some other purpose. And like the, you know, the, the, the energy impacts can still be pretty big and thus can still have an impact, a, a meaningful impact on climate change, even without it, you know, just growing exponentially to infinity. I, I agree with that. I think the thing is you could have, I don't have a good link to it, but I know there were articles back in the um, early 2000s that the internet was going to swamp all electricity in the world if it, if it kept growing like it did. And so is Bitcoin, is cryptocurrency going to be a electricity intensive part of the economy? That seems almost guaranteed. Uh, like anything else that's moving to a digital infrastructure, then yes, I would say I, I'm there. But is it uh, massive? I, I think people will innovate around that. I mean, one thing we didn't talk about is um, like the Lightning Network, a bunch of just the ways in which you use transactions or the ways in which you use cryptocurrency. There's There's a number of proposals already and ideas floated out there where um, you only use the blockchain for as like your final record of transactions, but you conduct all the rest of your transactions on sort of private channels outside of it and then dump them back onto the blockchain just to like um, only use that intensive cryptographic hashing, you know, rarely instead of for every single transaction. There, there's a bunch of proposals already you know, floating out there this year. You literally just opened a whole new door to a whole new world I've never heard about and I don't understand at all. This is a perfect way to close it out. Close it quick. All right, I'll leave you two things. Look at Lightning Network and Raiden, R-A-I-D-E-N. Those two are, yeah, worth looking at. They they sound cool, I'll tell you that. Okay, well, we'll, we'll try to address those in a future episode. As you can see, these doors continually open and we step through them and enter a whole new world. And I'm looking forward to exploring this more and more. I think there's going to be a lot of questions from our audience out there, people in the energy business, investors, developers, and cryptocurrency nerds who are really interested in these um, blockchain energy applications. Yeah. You know, if we got anything wrong here, as I'm sure we did, tweet at Steven. It's at Steven Lacey. (laughs) If you notice, I tried to hang back a little bit so that I wouldn't keep saying the wrong thing. <laughs> Get all the heat. <laughs> um, also, actually, if you, if anyone knows of a good study or is working on any numbers comparing existing fiat currency with cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin mining itself, I'd love to see something. So you can send that to podcast at greentechmedia.com you're saying from an energy consumption perspective like yeah like how much sorry, i mean energy consumption perspective. which is an interesting question like how much energy do we actually consume in the literal printing of uh paper currency and the shipping thereof yeah you gotta cut down trees oh, but you could go farther mm-hmm. look at all the people that work in the visa headquarters right Right. It's the MasterCard. Like, like literally, we just got this is disintermediating all of them. So, the, the energy intensity of transactions is actually quite high when you factor all those people in. And another door opens. <laughs> We're going to close it out there, folks. Um, thanks to Scott and Shale for a great conversation. Hopefully we all reach consensus and we're going to continue to try to reach consensus in coming episodes. Um, in the meantime, again, reach out to us at podcast at greentechmedia.com if you want to provide commentary 
or suggest other concepts that you want us to tackle on this show. I'm Stephen Lacey with Shale Khan and Scott Clavenna. This is the Interchange Weekly Conversations on the Global Energy Transformation. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time.